This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Paths Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpathsrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is another one in the series that I am doing on developing a solid sense of self. And I'm going to be talking today about self-care or caring for the self. You know, I, I hear people bandy about the term self-care and, you know, sometimes I'll have clients who are like, I'm doing self-care and it's not working. So I want to talk a little bit, go a little bit deeper into, you know, when we're talking about self-care, what are we actually talking about? So I'm going to go back a little bit and introduce you to Martin Seligman. He's a psychologist and he's thought to be the father of positive psychology and well-being. He also coined the term learned helplessness in a not-so-nice experiment that he did with dogs. Anyway, when he is talking about the meaningful life, he says, the meaningful life is knowing what your highest strengths are and, quote, using your signature strengths and virtues in the service of something much larger than you are, end quote. He comments that authentic happiness is meant, quote, as a preface to the meaningful life, and that while it is possible to take drugs to generate the effects of positive emotion and pleasure through pharmacology, it is not possible to synthesize the positive effects of being in the flow or of experiencing meaning, end quote. He says, a happy life is made up of three different kinds of lives. So the first one that he identifies is what he terms the pleasant life, which he says consists of having as many of the positive emotions as you can and learning the skills that amplify those emotions. So yeah, that does sound like a pleasant life. I'm having as many of the positive emotions as I can, and I'm learning how to amplify positive emotions. That sounds great. He says, fortunately, positive emotion or hedonics as we often see it portrayed in the Hollywood context, is not where it ends. Pleasure in itself seems empty, and philosophers from Aristotle through Seneca through Wittgenstein considered the notion of pleasure as vulgar. So the second thing he identifies for a meaningful life is, he says, the good life is the second kind of life, and at its root is knowing what you're good at. He calls these your signature strengths. And then recrafting your life to use more of these strengths in all aspects of your life, which will lead us to flow. He says, when we deploy our strengths in various parts of our lives, such as work, home, romance, we end up spending a lot more time in flow. Now, Thomas Jefferson and Aristotle talked about the good life as the pursuit of happiness. And Martin Seligman says they weren't talking about smiling and giggling they were talking about the pleasures of contemplation and the pleasures of good conversation. He says, it is the place where time stops, where you feel completely at home, where negative emotions like self-consciousness is blocked and where you're one with what you are doing. Now, maybe you've listened to my podcast long enough that you know I'm going to say something here about the fact 
that Martin Seligman chose Thomas Jefferson, a white privileged male for his time, and Aristotle, also a white privileged male for his time. Also men who held, I would say, sexist or misogynistic views between the genders to quote on what they thought was the good life or how they could obtain a good life. So I'm just going to point that out. I'm sure many of you who have listened to my podcast episode won't be surprised by that. You might roll your eyes at that or you might think, oh, there goes Jackie again. She just got that issue. I do. I'll own it. So again, I think for him to quote and say, you know, that Thomas Jefferson and Aristotle were talking about the pursuit of happiness in terms of, you know, the pleasures of contemplation and the pleasures of good conversation when they weren't really advocates for females being educated or seeing women as potential equals to them in thought and occupation or talents or ideas. But we'll leave that to a different podcast episode or we're just going to leave that where that lies right now. So, okay, just to go back and review what we've learned from Martin Seligman so far, he says, there's the pleasant of life, the pleasant life, which is having as many of the pleasures as you can and learning skills to expand them. Uh, He was talking about the pleasures of many of the pleasant emotions and learning the skills to expand them. And then there's the good life, which is knowing what your highest strengths are and recrafting everything you do to use them as much as possible or as often as possible. And then he talked about a third form of happiness that we humans pursue, which was the pursuit of meaning. So according to Seligman, he said, there's one thing we know about meaning. Meaning consists in attachment to something bigger than you are. The self is not a very good site for attaching meaning. And the larger the thing that you can credibly attach yourself to, the more meaning you find. So he defined meaning is knowing what your highest strengths are and deploying those in the service of something you believe is larger than yourself. And there's no shortcut to that, he said. That's what life is about. Now, sure, he said, there's likely to be some pharmacology of pleasure. There may be a pharmacology of positive emotion. But he said it's unlikely that there's going to be an interesting pharmacology of flow. And as Seligman said, it's impossible that there'll be a pharmacology of meaning. Now, again, he is still alive. He's 80 years old. The beginning part of September, I went to San Francisco to meet with some people, not necessarily therapists. I think one other person there was actually a therapist, but just some people that I had met and he was gathering some people that he knew. So I knew two of the people I've known them for a couple of years. And then one person I had met once before, I think the, the guy that we knew in common had asked me to meet with him on Zoom. He was looking at starting up his own private practice and transitioning away from uh, providing therapy in a residential setting. So I met him on Zoom and then in San Francisco at the beginning of September, we met in person. And it was interesting, one of the people that this guy that I know Um, had come talk to us. We were there for two or three days. One of the people that he had invited to come talk to us is he's known as Dr. Dave. And he had a fascinating story. He's 84. So 
I would say a contemporary of Martin Seligman. And he was, he's a practicing physician. Well, I don't think he's a practicing physician anymore. Maybe he is. He didn't mention that, but he was an MD and he was practicing at a hospital in San Francisco back in 1967. So the summer of love, all of these hippies and all of these bands are descending on San Francisco to, you know, enjoy the good music, enjoy the good life, as Martin Seligman would say, and to enjoy the good pharmacology, let's say. And Dr. Dave was talking about how, you know, many of the people, not many, I don't know, compared, I'm not saying the majority, but many of the concert goers and the hippies who were enjoying the good pharmacology were having bad trips. And, you know, he said back in 1967, it was illegal to treat an addict who was in the throes of their active addiction, right? Who was having bad side effects from using. That was against the law, which I don't think I ever knew that or learned that. And then he said, the second thing is that hospitals believed that healthcare was a privilege and not a right. And so many EMS services wouldn't go pick them up and bring them to the hospital because the hospital would not accept them because it wasn't a right that they had to medical care. It was a privilege. And, you know, he said, I was watching this happening. I had my own feelings. You know, he said, we still haven't eliminated those beliefs when it comes to healthcare or even treating addiction, although it's not illegal anymore. And he said, so I opened the, what came to be known as the hate Ashbury clinic in San Francisco. And he was treating those concert goers who had bad trips while they were using. And so he said, you know, I've, I've kind of worked in that field of, you know, that intersection of medicine and the psychedelics. And he, you know, he was saying, I have some beliefs about that. I think we should, you know, he would like to see some of those substances be legalized. He definitely talked about some of the issues that come with legalizing drugs that have previously been illegal. And one of those being, you know, that then they become capitalized and companies want to corporations, right? They're not necessarily individuals who are making a lot of money. It's corporations who are now branding or patenting how they change those substances. And he said, you know, that that's been an issue with marijuana as that's been decriminalized and more legalized over the last, you know, five five years or so, that's been an issue. And so he's, you know, he says, I mean, there's going to be problems with this, but he says, I, I truly believe that there's work that we can do with patients who have experienced trauma through pharmacology. So two different thoughts there, you know, I'm going to let you decide where you land, but there are two different thoughts. So I'm introducing you to Martin Seligman and some of the things that he pointed out. I don't necessarily agree with everything he's saying, obviously, as I took issue with some of the people he holds up as examples. And again, I'm not taking away. Aristotle did some good things and Thomas Jefferson did some good things. We don't have to throw everything out the window. And I do think we maybe could hold the bar a little bit higher for people that we revere or history will revere going forward from here. Now, Usually for most of us, 
I think there's a myth out there that meaning comes from one source. And what we find through research and the data is that meaning typically is drawn from multiple sources. Those can include family, love, work, religion, personal projects or personal passions that we have. Roy Baumeister and Kathleen Vaz associate the quest for meaning in life with the following needs. So they say we need purpose, which they defined as present or current events that we draw meaning from their connection to future outcomes. So we, you know, organize our goals around this purpose, our values, which can justify a certain course of action or how we prioritize things, efficacy, the belief that one can make a difference, and then self-worth, the reasons that we believe that I'm a good person or a worthy person. Now they talk about how this type of engagement brings personal joy and it imbues meaning to one's life. They talk about how it even makes it possible for us to work towards the greater good or to transcend our personal limitations and to get enmeshed in creating resilience for our communities and those who are close to us. In this field, they've even broken down and said there's a classification of six universal virtues which break down into 24 strengths. So there's a wisdom, virtue, knowledge, courage, virtues like love and humanity is the third one, fourth, a justice cluster, fifth, temperance or moderation cluster, and sixth, a spirituality or transcendence cluster. They say that these virtues and their subordinate strengths represent the best in us. So a well-rounded person is going to have some strengths in those six classifications. Now, Martin Seligman talked about how it is virtually impossible for a person to be engaged in one's area of personal strengths without creating meaningful output, both for the personal uh, benefit and a wider consumption. He talked about how finding out what we are good at is not only our birthright, but will in most instances result in greater life satisfaction. He wrote that knowing what our personal strengths are allows us to find our niche in this world, the place where we can be recognized for our strengths, where we have enough talent not only to use for our own good, but plenty to spare for and share with others. Now, again, when I read this today, I would say I'm, you know, a woman of some means. I have an education. But that doesn't mean that's where I started from. And it isn't lost on me that when I'm reading things like this, and maybe for some of you, this is where you get lost in understanding self-care, is this sounds like a lot of privilege. I think, you know, knowing what our personal strengths are and then saying that allows us to find our niche where we can be recognized for our strengths. Well, that's great if we don't have a world who says people who are different from this model are bad or are criminal or whatever the situation is or should be feared, right? I think we have to look at the systems that we are in and some of the beliefs instead of putting this all at the foot 
or the feet. Everybody has two. Most people have two. Rather than putting this at the feet of the person and saying, oh, the problem is you just haven't found a place where you can be recognized for your strengths. Sorry, keep looking. Or, you know, that you must not know what your personal strengths are because you haven't been recognized. And so that lies on you. I think sometimes when we're talking about self-care and that leads to conversations or reading things about life purpose, life meaning, I think for a lot of people, they've taken the exit ramp already because they're like, this doesn't apply to me. I'm figuring out how to pay my bills or I'm worried about finding rent next month or how I'm going to ever buy a house. So I want to acknowledge that I feel some of those same things when I read stuff about this. So I wanted to put some of that out there, what that sounds like, and also acknowledge like, yeah, it sounds a little bit like victim blaming and that we're just kind of looking past. Now, again, Martin Seligman's work wasn't just centered around America, which is where he was born and worked most of his life, but he was also looking outside just the country that he was born and raised in, but also looking at the world and different cultures. That doesn't always show up, I feel like, in some of his writing. I did a podcast episode, I think it was in 2020, I think it was during the COVID shutdown, talking about the VIA that Martin Seligman is given credit for developing. I'm sure there were other people who were helping him develop that. And it's an assessment. You can access it online. So it's VIA assessments, I think. And it's looking at your strengths and your virtue and you're taking, you know, a little quiz that's asking you questions and you're prioritizing and organizing them. And then it kind of says like, here's your strengths. Here's, you know, the things that you value, the virtues that you hold. And I think sometimes that can be helpful. I like the assessment for what it does. It can help like sometimes when I'm working with clients and we're working on trauma and we're working on unpacking their story, it can get heavy. And sometimes it's nice to just kind of swing back into the strengths of a person when things are getting heavy. We need to be able to look at like, what are you doing well? What do we see in you that are inherent strengths that have been there maybe to varying capacities, but have been there even during your difficult time and that are showing up currently. So again, the VIA separates out like a strength of wisdom and knowledge and includes things like creativity or curiosity or open-mindedness, love of learning, wisdom, perspective, ability to perspective take, strengths of courage, which include things like bravery, persistence, integrity, vitality, Strengths of humanity, which include love, kindness, and social intelligence, emotional intelligence, and then personal intelligence. Strengths of justice, like social responsibility or loyalty or teamwork. Fairness, leadership. Strengths of temperance, which include forgiveness and mercy, humility and modesty, prudence, self-regulation, and then strengths of transcendence, which he identified as appreciation of beauty and excellence, having awe or wonder, gratitude, hope, humor, our playfulness, 
and then spirituality or religiousness. I think in this particular assessment, the spirituality piece is religiously based. So maybe for those of you who identify as spiritual but not necessarily religious, you'll find that many of the questions around spirituality there don't line up for what you believe or how you see yourself, which is fine. I think other ways of being that he put under strengths of transcendence are also maybe ways that you might find uh, that relate to your spirituality or how you practice or how you conceptualize your own spirituality. So, okay, we've talked about some of those things. You know, I, I have to say a couple, oh gosh, this would have been a couple decades ago, maybe. I was early in my career, I think. And I was at a conference, I was at a training conference and they were talking about, you know, this concept of finding your calling and that your calling is bigger than just you and, you know, the, the daily pressures or stresses or priorities that one individual experiences, which again, I don't want to minimize or disregard that those sometimes can be consuming and important. But in this particular thing, they were talking about, you know, finding your calling and, you know, they were saying in order to find your calling, visualize, it was something like this. It wasn't totally like this, but they were saying, you know, just visualize your existence on earth and now imagine the specific reason that you are here on this planet. And they were talking about how that type of visualization would help us it would enable us to find our calling something to that effect and I mean this is not uncommon for me things like that when that comes up I, I don't like those things and I was kind of rolling my eyes but I was supposed to have my eyes closed so they were closed but I was rolling them behind my closed eyelids and I struggle with things like that. And for me, I think it's worked out okay because I feel like from that day, I feel like I did find my calling. Now, sometimes when I'm talking about, you know, the work that I do, I usually will say my calling came to me. It kind of had to grab me by the shirt collar and track me down and drag me in because I was not interested in the calling as it came or when it came and I didn't see it as my calling. And if it worked for you to have an active practice of you visualizing your calling, I'm not dissing on that process. If that worked for you, that's fine. It did not work for me. And knowing myself, it wasn't likely that that process would work for me. And so I feel like at least for me, what I would envision or think for myself would probably be missing the point. I might think small or I might, I might be completely off the path of what my calling actually is. And I think that's true for a lot of people that we would limit our own selves in terms of our calling. Now there's other people I think who would not limit themselves, but might tend to have some grandiose or some narcissistic tendencies in terms of what their calling might be. And if it doesn't come to fruition the way that they envisioned it, that might be difficult for them because that's what they envisioned. And isn't that how that works? Well, I think people are more complex than that. 
life is way more complex than that. And I think we can be open to our calling, but I don't know that we're the best ones to define that or to control that. So, okay, now that we've talked about maybe, you know, some of the writing or the thinking about self-care and about living a life of meaning and purpose, which usually, you know, self-care is designed to move us into living a life of meaning and purpose in most of the writings that you find, I want to have a more realistic conversation about this. Like, how do I care for myself? And how do you care for yourself? Because... You know, it can't be true that only privileged people are able to care for themselves or only privileged people are able to have a life of pleasure or a life of meaning and purpose. Now, like I said before, I've sat in enough rooms where people are talking about self-care or even people who just make comments in an offhanded way around self-care to think, I think we've missed the boat when it comes to self-care. I think we're going around the point of self-care and maybe we're doing some fun things. Maybe we're meeting some fun people. Maybe we develop some great talents or hobbies. But what it comes down to for me is self-care comes down to reinforcing that part within us that says, I matter. And if we don't have a part within us that says I matter and that holds that belief, then we'll have to start there. So this self-care really is building on that belief within us or that sense that we have within us that says I matter. It allows us to increase. It allows us to grow. It allows us to connect in meaningful ways with that part of us that says I matter. And because I matter, what do I need to do with that? And maybe that's what Martin Seligman was trying to get at. And I'm being critical of his stuff. Sure, that's possible. But I think we have to have that conversation around the fact that it says self-care comes down to, do you believe that you matter? And are you nurturing that part? Are you nurturing that belief? Or are you putting that belief in place? One of those two approaches is what I would say boils down to self-care. I think we can distract ourselves from the awareness that maybe I don't feel like I matter. We can avoid that part of ourselves that questions that or knows that. We can deny that part of ourselves. We can bypass that part of ourselves, like I said, and do some really fun things. But at the end of doing the really fun thing, I haven't really made a lot of progress on that belief that I need within me that says I matter. Me. Not because of somebody else, but just because I'm me, right? We talked about in a previous episode, or I talked about in a previous episode, that being value versus the performance value. Being value to me translates into I matter. I matter because. So how do we work on the belief that we matter, that I matter, that you matter? Well, I would say, and maybe I'm biased here, but I would say we have to start by facing our story. And as we face that story and start to understand that story, we start to ask ourselves the questions that come from doing that. 
Now, one of the concepts I like is by Kristen Neff. She talks about fierce compassion. And I think this is really good to think about when we start to think about facing our story and understanding and having insight and awareness into our story, as well as understanding that our story is only one story, right? We were born into a story that was already in progress. So Kristen says, she has a new book out called Fierce Self-Compassion. And she says, quote, the quintessential question of self-compassion is what do I need right now? And more specifically, what do I need to help alleviate my suffering? The answer to this question changes depending on the circumstances. Sometimes what we need is to accept ourselves in all our human imperfection, to love ourselves as we are in the moment. Sometimes I will say to my clients, just welcome. Like you might not love it, but can you allow it? And we'll get to the part that we can love and have compassion and understanding for, but we first have to allow it. You know, if I have a client that's coming in and saying, I'm really angry. Maybe it's about our last session. Sometimes that happens. Maybe it's about something else. And I'm just like, okay, I'm so glad you brought your anger here. Your anger is welcome, right? Your anger is welcome in this session, which I think anger is one of those emotions that for many of us, we don't find it welcome in very many places. So I think it's important to have a place where your anger is welcome. Maybe it's explored, it's understood, it's validated. She continues, that doesn't mean we necessarily want to stay as we are in the moment. She says, if a herd of cattle is stampeding towards you, it's not the time for self-acceptance. It's time for action. Most people think of self-compassion as soft and gentle, but self-compassion can be fierce as well as tender. Tender self-compassion involves being with ourselves in an accepting way, comforting ourselves, reassuring ourselves that we aren't alone and being present with our pain. Fierce self-compassion involves acting in the world to alleviate suffering. It tends to involve protecting, providing for, and motivating ourselves. Sometimes we need to stand tall and say no, draw boundaries, or fight injustice. Or we may need to say yes to ourselves, to do what's needed to be happy, rather than subordinating our needs to those of others. And if we're stuck in a bad situation or habits that are harmful, it means doing something different. Not because we're unacceptable as we are, but because we care. She says, if tender self-compassion is metaphorically like a parent soothing their crying child, fierce self-compassion is like the mama bear who ferociously protects her cubs when threatened or catches fish to feed them or moves them to a new territory with better resources. Just as tenderness can be turned inward so that we nurture and care for ourselves, the fierce energy of mama bear can also be turned inward to stand up for ourselves. What's essential is that like yin and yang, these two faces of self-compassion are balanced and integrated so that we can be whole. When both are present, it creates a caring force that can be used to transform ourselves and the world around us. So I think in many ways, self-care is going to look different for everyone because self-care is based on our personal stories and our experiences. There are parts of my story that impacted me in a way that I need self-care to try to build 
resilience towards that. That maybe another person has a different experience that they're building some resilience and understanding and some protection around. Now, I think for most people, I mean, I talk with a lot of people about self-care as a therapist. And yeah, I think there's some overlap, even though the stories that are behind the need for the self-care, the details might be different. I think there can also be some overlap, which is why it can be helpful to talk to others about self-care. What are you doing that is working? Or sharing with them what we're doing that seems to be working. I think it is okay to customize your self-care strategy and your plan. I think that is what self-esteem is all about. It's an awareness of the self that says I matter and I can esteem myself. Now, there are, you know, as people have studied this, people have talked about this. Sometimes you Google it there, you can find seven components of self-esteem or three components of self-esteem. The ones that I hear the most are five, four or five, I would say. So the five components of self-esteem, first one is about security, which has to do with safety. I know that I'm safe. And if I'm not safe, it's going to be really hard for me to have self-esteem. So I need to start there. I need to start looking at what can I do to feel safe. And if I have created an environment where I am safe, can I feel safe? And can that safety allow me to start to move out into my world to learn other things about myself? Or does that safety require me to just be small? Because we might need to work on safety. The second component of self-esteem is identity. Do I know who I am? That can be important. The third one is belonging. I have a sense that I'm acceptable to others and to myself. And then the fourth one is purpose, which can be, I know what I want to achieve, or I know that the way I'm living my life has purpose. And then the fifth one is competence. Now, again, when I was talking to one of my kids when they were younger, maybe like in high school, and she had gotten one of our report cards back and she was a pretty good student. She was actually a really good student, but she didn't necessarily feel she was a really good student. The other three thought they were fine students and didn't really care to be much more than that, but they were fine, which is true. They were fine students, but this one was a pretty good student, just didn't quite, that didn't transfer into her belief of self. And, you know, she was saying some subjects I struggle with, even if I'm getting a decent grade, I'm struggling and other subjects come easier to me. And I said to her, like, look, let me let you in on a secret in life. That's true for most people. When we're talking about competence, you know, again, there's competence can be I mean, sometimes with clients, I'm like, I think of competence as a pretty low bar. Sometimes in school, it might feel like it's a high bar to be competent at something. And the reality is, you know, I mean, the way school is taught different subjects, health, biology, science, math, English, history, home economics or auto shop. I mean, in college, I took a tennis class. I mean, there's such a wide variety, right? And I'm like, yeah, there is some development of self in, in being exposed to a wide range of concepts and learning that. But we don't have to master every 
different concept. Most people eventually choose, if they're going to college, they choose a major or they graduate high school and maybe they go to a technical college or, you know, they find a job that teaches them. There's a lot of on the job training and they become an expert in the field that they're working in. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about history, they're like, oh, that rings a bell. But it's been a long time since I've read about that or learned about that or studied that. And so again, I think sometimes we think of competence more as like an expert. And I think competence is a pretty low bar. I know I'm capable, right? Well, I'm capable of relearning things in history that I haven't read about or learned about for a really long time. I'm capable of doing that. Just because I can't regurgitate the facts about that doesn't mean I'm not competent. So as I have been doing this series on developing a sense of self, I have been making a list in my notes app in my phone and I just copied it and put it on this outline. So here's what I came up with. Some of them, as I was um, reading Kristen Neff's piece about fierce self-compassion. I was like, oh, I have several of those on my list of ways that I care for myself or ways that my self-care looks as well. So I just wrote these down. I don't know that they were in any like order in terms of priority or frequency. It was just what I was thinking about. And, you know, again, I could probably keep adding to this list, but I think also the list kind of covers most of the things. So I have on there paying attention to my wants, needs, and feelings, and either meeting those myself or asking others for help there. Observing my limits, setting boundaries, sleep, exercise, engage with others from a place of empowerment, speaking up, saying no, saying yes, having connection to the people who are in my inner circle, eating well. Now, I would say on a weekly basis, you know, I'm not a really strict eater when it comes to eating healthy things. But, you know, I try to have two or three vegetables every day. I try to have a fruit. You know, I I try to have some healthy things in my diet most weeks. And the older I get, you know, I've just learned my body works better when I'm eating from a place of putting into my body what is designed to feed my body. So I'm not perfect at that, but I know that eating well is a way of caring for myself. Connect to my surroundings and get outside of myself. Acting from my values or my beliefs. Doing what I want. Again, that's not whenever I want, but it is saying I'm not dependent on others for what I want. I can also, now that I'm, an adult, I can also meet those wants. I can take care of some of those wants. Yeah, some of them, maybe they work best if I'm asking another person to engage with me in taking care of those wants. But I can also take care of those wants. It's not like I'm a child dependent on others to care for my wants. Asking for help, going to therapy, learning, challenging myself, accepting myself and my imperfections. Now, with some of the clients that I work with, 
we're going to be starting with much more basic ways of caring for themselves and what that looks like. So these have included conversations about efforts to shower, personal hygiene, brushing their teeth, cleaning up their surroundings, doing their laundry, opening up, starting to talk about what they want to talk about in therapy. But it's also about setting goals that are obtainable for self-care. I mean, I've met with clients who we do therapy sessions and they're in their closet. And I did some therapy sessions with clients who were in their closet before Zoom or online was an option. That's just where they felt safe enough to open up. And so if that's how they could open up, that's an obtainable goal. How can we make that work? You know, I've worked with clients who struggle just to get out of bed and function. The depression seems so overwhelming for them. And I'll say, okay, what about getting out of bed and showering once a day, whenever during the day you want to, you can, and you can get back in bed after you shower, but what about showering every day? Or what about showering every other day or every three days? Whatever you can do to start to care for the self. We are literally caring for yourself. With some of my clients, I'm like, when have you last been to a doctor and had a physical? Or when's the last time you've been to a dentist? I think a lot of that is just starting where you are. For me as the therapist, it's starting where my clients are and meeting them with self-compassion and understanding and seeing what we can do to start to care for the self. Because I think when we are caring for ourselves, even if that's showering every other day, maybe I'm not, you know, I'll say to my female clients, maybe you're not actually doing your hair or maybe you put zero makeup on, but you shower every other day. And, or maybe you're brushing your teeth every day and you shower every other day. We're literally starting to care for ourselves physically, which has that message there built into that, that says, I matter. We care for things that matter, right? I've never known anybody and maybe that's me, but I don't, I've rented cars before. I have never washed a rental car. And I've turned in some really dirty rental cars where I went through a horrendous storm and I just kept washing that windshield. I might wash the windshield because everything's so bad or I'm just putting that windshield wiper fluid on, but I don't wash it because it doesn't matter to me, right? It's not my car and they're probably going to clean it anyway. So maybe that's bad. Maybe I should be washing my car more often, my rental cars more often. I wash my own car at least once a week. Where I'm like wash, going through a car wash, drying it, vacuuming it, conditioning the seats. I do that at least once a week. Sometimes if it's, you know, a particularly stormy week, I might just drive through the car wash and then, you know, let it dry on its own while I'm driving two more times a week. But again, that's different. I'm caring for something that's mine. So when I'm starting to care for myself physically, I am saying that matters. It matters to me because it's me, because it's mine. Now, one of my favorite exercises that one of our therapists introduced me to that I've been using with clients, again, going back to Kristen Neff, and it's just a you know simple self-compassion break. If I have a client who's coming in with something 
really heavy for them or they're in a difficult place or the week's been particularly hard. I love doing this in therapy session and I love it even more when these same clients start to tell me that they are using it outside of our therapy sessions. So again, it's not time intensive exercise. It's not going to be high demand. So the way that Kristen Neff outlines it, she says, you know, think of a situation in your life that is difficult or that's causing you stress. Now for me as the therapist, they're coming in with that and I can feel it when they sit down in the therapy session. And so I'll just, you know, kind of listen to them. What's, what's going on? What are you coming in with? I might say, and just listening to what they're saying and kind of paying attention to some of the words language and the details that they're giving me. And I might see, wow, how would I feel in my body if this were going on for me? Or how do I imagine this feels for them? And I might say like, oh, I think, wow, my chest would feel really heavy. How is your, you know, breathing? Or I might check in with them. Wow, my gut would just be in knots. What's happening with your gut? So I'm calling attention for them to what's happening in their body with this emotional discomfort. And then I might just say, I just want you to repeat after me. And I'll say out loud, this is a moment of suffering. And they're usually looking at me like, what? And I'm like, go ahead. I'm just, I'm saying it. You repeat it. This is a moment of suffering. And they'll repeat that. This is a moment of suffering. Now I might add to that. I might say, this hurts. This is hard. I don't like this. This is stress. This is painful. Ouch. So that's, you know, one, and they're going to be repeating what I'm saying. I'm kind of putting that into my own words and I'll invite them like take or leave whatever fits. I'm just kind of going to be saying some things. I want you to repeat them, but if it doesn't really fit. You can leave it. And the second part I'm saying suffering is a part of life. And I'm asking them to repeat that. I might add to that. Other people feel this way. We all struggle at times in our lives. I'm not alone. Just whatever I'm feeling like meets what they walked in with, what they need to hear in that. And then I'll ask them, will you just put your hands, both hands over your heart and just feel the warmth of your hands, the gentle touch of your hands on your chest, and then say to yourself, may I be kind to myself. Now for some of my clients, I might know You know, we may have had other conversations where I've asked, like, what did you need to hear in that moment? So I might know some of that stuff or that there's a particular phrase that speaks to them when they're in particular situations. So I'm going to use those at those times as well. But I'm going to say, may I be kind to myself? May I give myself compassion? Or may I learn to accept myself just as I am? May I forgive myself? Or may I be strong? Or may I be gentle? Or may I be patient? Whatever I feel like my client is going to need. One of the emotions that is very difficult for us is suffering and anything connected to that type of emotion, suffering. And typically, I think many of us suffer in silence or we suffer on our own and maybe nobody knows. And so I think that's a great exercise that we can just recognize. We can do it with any emotion, right? I think suffering captures a lot of the pain that comes up in therapy. 
And sometimes I have clients that are like, I don't think it's suffering. Like suffering feels much bigger to them than their own story. And I might just say, just notice that because it looks like suffering to me. Or do you have a better word that comes up for you that it feels like? But I want them to start to learn to be accepting of what they're feeling and to show compassion and understanding and kindness to themselves in that moment. Because that also is a way of caring for the self and caring in non-judgmental and in open and accepting ways. Whatever is coming up, I can accept that. Now, I think for many of us too, part of self-care is to work through the layers of the messages about ourselves that got put on us from others. Maybe they were their unhelpful beliefs or their negative beliefs about self. That can come from you know our parents, that can come from our grandparents, that can come from religion, it can come from community, it can come from like larger political systems. It can come from a lot of different ways. It can come from TV or movies, media, lyrics to songs that we pick up and start to recognize or that resonate with us. One of the songs I used to resonate with, and I might've shared this on a previous podcast. I haven't talked about it. If I did, it was a while ago. There was a Simon and Garfunkel song and I look back to my younger self. I was probably like 18, 19, 20, maybe those ages, maybe even starting at 17, that last year of high school. And the lyrics are quite sad to me. And I used it almost like an instruction manual. Like I could read through the lyrics and be like, okay, check, check, check. Got that. Okay, good. And then I'd go on to the next stanza, right? And I'd be like, okay, check, check, check. Yes. Okay. And I understand where that came from. I also have compassion and empathy for that younger self. And I just feel really bad that that's where she was when this was happening. I'm also really, really glad that I don't live that way anymore. I'm really glad that that younger self found out that there's a better way to live, a way that's not so isolated. So the song that I resonated with and really kind of used as, like I said, as a manual for living life was I am a rock. Now I'm just going to read some of the lyrics, but you know, again, I'm not kidding when I say I went through stanza by stanza and was like, okay, check, check, check. Got it. So this one, I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. Don't talk of love. Well, I've heard the word before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock. I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I am shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. And then it ends with this. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. Now, I didn't quite master that second to last part where a rock feels no pain. My pain was driving all of that. 
I did master not crying where it says an island never cries. I never cried. That was something I reclaimed well into my adult years, probably into my mid to late thirties before I was able to reclaim my tears. And there were a lot of tears that still needed to be shed because I had just stopped and not allowed that. I think it's also, you know, building a bridge between that younger self and the current self. You know, for some of my clients, it doesn't feel like they're that different. The past self or that younger self and the current self feels kind of like they're just an extension of that same person. And I understand that. I think part of therapy is creating a current self that isn't just an extension of the younger self, but also having a bridge that connects the two. We don't want to abandon that younger self who had to deal with so much and felt so much. We don't want to leave them behind or forget them or abandon them. So when I was in high school, I was coming up on my senior year and you know, I, I think I had most of my credits to graduate my junior year. And I, I think, I don't know if I was talking to my school counselor, my school counselor, I didn't like her. I don't think she liked me. She did not give me good advice. You know, when I had decided to go to college, she told me I wasn't college material, which I think even then I was kind of like, I don't know what you're basing that on, but like if my two friends, if their counselor thought they could go to college, I was like, I'm pretty sure I I can go to college. So I don't know that I was talking to her, but it might've been one of my friends counselors in high school. And they were talking about that you could have, you know, some release time, you could work, you could, you could just have some time where, you know, it's structured time. You're not just like home doing nothing or just driving gallivanting around town but where you didn't have to be in class, you didn't have to go to school. And so I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to go to beauty school. And I could graduate, you know, if I started like the summer after my junior year, I think I would have finished or I could have finished by the summer after my senior year. So by the time I was headed to college, I could be a hairstylist or a beautician or whatever the correct wording is for that now. And so I was talking to my mom about that. And my mom was like, oh, you can't do that. And I was like, why? Like my counselor said I could. And she was just like, well, it's going to be your senior year of high school. Like you'll miss out on so much and you will not like missing and having to leave school to go, you know, off campus to go to beauty school. And I was just like, I think I'll be okay. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I, think I'm going to be missing out on anything that important by not being in class. And when it came down to it, my mom wouldn't sign the paper saying that I could do that. And she just kept saying, I think I know best. I think I know best. And, you know, so I said to myself, well, okay, I'm going to go to college. And I did go to college the fall after I graduated high school. I started college. And I remember early in college, so maybe my first year, I remember thinking, I'm still going to go to beauty school. I mean, not right now. I'm going to finish what I'm doing here. But by the time I'm 50, I will have also gone to beauty school. That's what I told myself. And so, you know, several years ago, I was approaching 50. And I remembered this goal that I, that, that younger self had set for myself. By 50, I'm going to have gone to beauty school and graduated beauty school. 
So I had to kind of sit with that goal that she had made for me. And I had to say, like, was this my goal? I know it was her goal, but was it still my goal? And was my goal actually coming from within or was it more of a way to tell my mom, I told you so, or I'll show you. Anyway, needless to say, I've not gone to beauty school. I did, however, my first year at college, I worked at the housing office where I lived, you know, like giving out mail and doing little things around the office that was needed or around the residences if there was something that was needed more outside than inside. And so I did that, you know, for my job, my first year of college. And one day I was working at the housing office and some kid walked up and he was like, Hey, can you cut hair? And I was like, well, I'm not trained to. And he was like, well, yeah, I know, but can you do it? And I was like, sure, I can do it. I had not cut people's hair before that. And so I kind of had a side business that first year of college, cutting people's hair, which was my plan was to put myself through college working as a hairstylist. And I didn't fully do that. I think I only did that my first year of college, but I was cutting people's hair. So I'm like, okay, I can check that off. No, I'm just kidding about that last part. But one of the things I think we have to recognize as we start to care for ourselves in the adult years as part of being an adult and as part of working on developing a solid sense of self is that ability to have authority over myself. Now, when I was in high school, I couldn't have signed up for that work release because my mom wouldn't sign the paper. And I didn't have authority over myself to put myself into beauty school. But as an adult, I have a lot of authority over myself. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, in a political role or like in relation to laws or customs that we have put in place as a way of living together with different people and just making life run smoother in that way. Like, I mean, I have known some people, I, maybe they've always been around. It seems like they're a little bit more emboldened to speak up in terms of, you know, putting themselves above the law. I don't have to uh, comply with the law because I have authority over myself and I don't answer to whatever. I've interacted with some of those people, not necessarily at work. They're not coming to therapy, but outside of work and in, in my personal life, extended family, I've interacted with some of them. I'm not talking about that. I think those people are certainly skipping a lot of steps and that's not actually authority over self. It's more of an F you to rules or authority figures, but I'm talking about it in a way where I'm giving myself the authority to make my own choices and to have my reactions and that my reactions don't have to be based anymore on how I learn to react in my family of origin or to feel attached to my parents talking about, which also includes if I'm taking authority and giving myself permission to make my own choices and have my own reactions, that also means I have the authority to accept the consequences of my choices. If there are some, I have to accept responsibility for that. And I, I think that's how authority and agency in adulthood start to work together, where I give myself authority. I'm the authority over myself. 
that means I have to know myself really well in and out, which also requires me to know the story I come from and how that has impacted my own authentic story and working on the parts that I need to work on and facing the painful parts that I also need to face so that I now have authority and I can, with that authority, have agency over myself. I can make choices. I can decide for myself what I feel is best or, you know, on my boundary list to say no, to say yes, all of those types of things. I need authority over myself. I can't defer to other authority figures and outsource that. I have to start being the authority on me. I think also for me, one of the things I found working in that process of being the authority over me is actually I start to respect other people being the authority on them. I don't get to make choices for you. I don't get to tell you what to do with your authority. I need to spend time focusing on my own authority and my own agency and the choices I'm making. And that can take up most of my energy and most of my focus. And so I don't need to focus on other people. Now, I think also on my self-care list, one of the things that I had put on there was accepting myself and my imperfections. Now, some things about my story, I know the impact of that. And I know I need to work to change that. I need to have a different reaction because my initial reaction isn't helpful for the life I want to live or the person I want to be or feel that I am. But there's also things on there that I'm like, yeah, I mean, those are there. And I can accept that. I know that where they come from, I know why they're there. And I've got other things to work on. Those aren't really a priority for me. So some of those things, I know I'm a back row sitter. If I walk into a room, I'm going to sit on the back row. I'm not talking like a movie theater because I think a lot of people like the back row in the movie theater. I'm talking about in any room where there's chairs when people are sitting. I tend to pick the last row. I tend to sit the furthest back. And I know that that is part of me needing to read the room. I'll also like, maybe you don't have a lot of these opportunities. My husband sometimes is like, no, that doesn't come up for me very often because he has a very different job than I do. But for me, you know, if, if people are sharing things and I'm just a participant, right? I'll tend to go last. And if we don't have enough time, I'm like, that's okay. So I, I know I'll go last. And again, part of that similar to picking the back row in places is also if I have to mold what other people are saying to fit in, I'll do that. Now, I don't know that I do that anymore. Maybe I just, oh, we're out of time. That's okay. Because I, I think I used to adjust myself for the people in the room and I needed to hear what they were saying so that I knew how to make those adjustments on myself. But again, that was more connected to my story where I needed to read the room. I needed to know what was safe to say and what wasn't safe to say. And so I'll pick the back row or I'll wait to go last. Now I've done some work on that over the last several years. And, you know, for the most part where that's at, yeah, I still have a tendency to go towards the back row. Now I have some friends, some colleagues of mine that if we're in a training, maybe they get there first. And so they grab the seats. They're not back row sitters. They don't pick the back row. 
And I can just take a breath and be like, okay, we're on the second row. Wow, I would never pick the second row. And just take a breath and be like, I'll be fine and go sit on the second row. And I don't necessarily have to be uncomfortable sitting on the second row. I can just be. And I know that I can get used to that or I can be fine. I can be safe in this setting and I don't have to read the room. I don't have to have a view of everybody in front of me. So, I mean, again, that's some progress on my part. Not that, you know, before I would sit on the same row, but I would just be uncomfortable the whole time I was sitting there. But I would go along to get along. Another step that I've had to work on to secure kind of that belief within myself that says I matter is a message I received from my mom who, you know, sometimes, I mean, again, I think she would see this if I was thinking I was all that, or somehow maybe she thought that my ego would get the best of me. And she would say to me, like, who do you think you are? It was said kind of in a similar tone to that, where just the tone itself was like, I need to knock you down a few pegs. And typically my answer to her was nobody, nobody. I don't think I'm anybody. And that was not helpful. That dialogue was not helpful to me. I don't know if she had similar conversations or said that same thing to my siblings. We've never really talked about that. I haven't checked that out with them. But I know that was something for me that would come up. It came up, I don't know, 10, 20 times that I can think of in the first 18 years of my life. So the first time I remember it, it might have come up before that. But the first time I remember I was in seventh grade and I was running for a class officer and She was fine with that. She signed the paperwork, all of that. That was fine. And then I won. And she told me, if you start to think you're better than people, if I see that the friends you have now, you leave behind because you think they're better than them, I will pull you out of being an officer so fast. She said something to that effect. And I was like, oh, I believe you will. Like I, when she said that, I was like, yes, you will. And it so happened that one of the friends that I was friends with in elementary school had also run for class office and she did not win. And she backed away from the friendship. We weren't really ever friends after that, after seventh grade and really after the beginning of seventh grade. And I was scared that my mom would see that and put that on me. And I remember telling my mom, like, mom, I don't know what happened. I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. Like I still call her to hang out or I'm still saying hi to her in the hall at school. Like, cause I was afraid, right? That my mom would think that I was better than her or better than anybody. And again, I don't think that self-care or that belief that I matter says I matter more than anybody else. It just says, I matter. And I think, you know, where I'm at today in my life, I can have compassion for my mom. I mean, I've never said that to any of my girls. I've never said to them, oh, who do you think you are? And instead have tried to do the opposite that says like, you're amazing. You're beautiful. You're strong. You're talented. You're smart. Like I try to put those adjectives out there. And trust that they'll start picking some of them up because I do see them that way. And I can have, you know, compassion and understanding from my mom that she was in a different place. I don't really know a lot about that place because she didn't really 
talk about it and I didn't ever feel safe asking about it. But I can see now looking back that that was that question that she put to me was more about her own pain than it actually was about who I was or who I wasn't. But one of the things that I think is important because I think for many of us, a similar belief was ingrained and that is that we shouldn't consider ourselves important. We shouldn't consider ourselves important because if we did, that, that's like narcissistic. I see this in clients that I'm working with. Somebody pays them a compliment or maybe they receive a pay increase at work because of the work they've been doing and they get recognition and appreciation. Or somebody tells them, you know, I really care about you and you've had this impact in my life and they describe what that positive impact was. And most of the people that I have worked with or, you know, with those conversations come up or even that I know personally, it makes us incredibly uncomfortable. And most often our response is to downplay that or to give a compliment in return or like kind of minimizing it. Oh, you're so nice. Oh, that's so nice of you to say when they're receiving a compliment, right? Or they might respond with an insult to themselves. Oh, well, I do this really bad. I think for many of us, it is uncomfortable to hear how we have impacted another person in a positive way. I had a client a couple months ago call me out on this. And this is a client I've worked with for going on four years probably. And I probably should have recognized, but in that moment I was just being human and imperfect myself. And it was towards the end of one of our sessions and he talked about, now this is, I had known this client, you know, three and a half going on four years. He's not the kind of person that gives out compliments or talks about how anybody has impacted him in a positive way, let alone his therapist. He's probably the kind of person who, if he let other people know he was seeing a therapist, they would be surprised and maybe even feel bad for the therapist. It's kind of the image or the protective layer he kind of puts on himself. And I hadn't really felt like I had gotten much behind that protective layer very much. And then in this session, he actually got emotional, teared up and just said, Jackie, I don't, I don't think I've ever thanked you. And just proceeded to talk about what he was grateful for in terms of our therapeutic relationship. And it, it caught me off guard. And again, I'm human and get just as uncomfortable when people are talking about me in front of me in terms of how I've impacted them. And I mean, I listened to him. I didn't interrupt him or shut him down, but I think I responded in a way that said, well, I really appreciate working with you, which is true. And really kind of gave the credit to him, which I mean, he deserves a lot of credit. I can't make my clients change. They have to do that themselves. And so I was kind of giving him that back and saying, well, you've done A, B, C, and D, and I have seen some of the progress and the change that you've made. And, and I think I ended up saying, but thank you. Right. And he left and I, I did, I had that thought to myself after he had left, like, 
Again, this is not a man who goes around expressing his feelings for people. I mean, maybe he does his spouse and his kids, maybe. But I think, again, he's just not that type of a man. And so what he was saying to me was important. He doesn't do that very often, I don't think. I don't think he says things like that to people. And I think it took him a lot for him to say that on that particular day. And I minimized that or created some distance between him and me. That was a moment for real connection and a moment of intimacy between the therapist and the client and me giving it back to him instead of genuinely meeting him in that moment, I think created some space. Again, it's not like I was horrible at handling it, but just some awareness that I had after the fact. Now, I think he was out of town a couple of weeks and so we didn't see each other for a few weeks. And when he came to his next session, he actually brought that up earlier in the session, not at the end of the session and kind of brought it up the same way. Like, I don't know if I've said this to you before and I don't feel like it was rehearsed or that he was just repeating it. I felt like it was genuine. And for me, I thought, oh yeah, he doesn't remember this because I didn't meet him in that moment of authenticity and closeness. And that can still be uncomfortable for me. I've worked a lot on being able to lean into the closeness in the relationship instead of leaning out of it and being like, ooh, that's really close and that makes me uncomfortable. But it's still not easy for me. And I just, again, had to take a breath and lean in. And this time we had a different discussion about that. And I could still give him the credit that he had earned. And also saying, thank you. Thank you. I like to know how my clients feel about the work that we're doing. And I really appreciate you sharing how I've impacted you. You know, and I was just honest and said, it's one of the reasons I'm in this field. I've had people in my life who had a positive impact on me and it made a difference. And that's a big part of what brought me into this field. And so I really like when my clients acknowledge that that's happening for them. And I'm so proud of you and the work that you've done and the progress you've made. And, you know, just felt like it was a more genuine conversation I was able this time to lean in instead of creating some distance or some safety for me in terms of not getting too close. And I was glad he brought it up again. And for me, it was a learning lesson. Like he didn't remember if he had shared that before because I wasn't in that moment with him. And I think that is so important that we can do that, whether that's other people talking to us about the impact that they've had on us us talking to them about that. You know, I, I shared a story a little while ago about one of my college professors when I was at a two-year college. Initially, I went to a two-year college and this professor had a significant impact on my life. And again, I was like 18 to 20 those years. I was so young. And again, I'm building walls. I'm cutting people off. I don't feel anything. And I had asked him to write me a letter. We kept in touch after I graduated and went to a, the four-year college, finished my bachelor's. And I asked him when I was applying for my master's program if he would 
write a letter of recommendation. And his letter was so kind to me. And I think was the first time, not the first time he had put into words what he thought about me or how he felt about me, all in appropriate ways. But to have it on a piece of paper in writing kind of blew me away. I don't know that I'd ever seen myself through somebody's eyes like that. But I believed him. I didn't ever know him to be not honest. And so when I was in graduate school, I wrote him a letter just talking about the positive impact he had on me and how much I valued the relationship I had with him and how grateful I was for the role that he played in my life. I was able to respond back. And unfortunately, I got a letter back in the mail from his wife letting me know that he had passed away. And he'd passed away before my letter arrived. But that she had opened it and she had read it. And, you know, she just said, I think he knew that you felt that way about him. And I'm sure he knows that you feel that way about him. And just know that he loved you. And you were like a daughter to him. Which, you know, he became a father figure to me. Which was helpful for me. I think him being a father figure for me started to help me see that maybe males were safe. And fortunately, I know a lot of safe males. And with the work that I do, I work with a lot of males and get to see their progress and understand their story. And I think that's still part of the work I'm doing around my dad. I'll probably always have some work I'm doing around my dad and my mom. And sometimes I think, okay, I've, I've done the work around my dad and we're good now. I think, okay, I'm good. We're not good, but I'm good. And then, you know, it just comes back up again in some way or another. And I'm going to have to work on that. I'm going to have to keep working with that and be accepting and welcome it when it comes. Sometimes I think if we didn't disregard or minimize or push away the feedback that we get from other people, we might realize that actually that's not narcissism at all. They're not traits of being a narcissist. They're actually elements of healthy self-esteem. Again, if we go back to elements of healthy self-esteem, it's, I like myself. I think other people like me. Maybe not everybody, but others like me. That belief that I matter and that I have purpose. I think we need feedback from others about how we're coming across or how they see us. If it's only our perspective, we may be off in some ways or we don't really know how that lands. And so we need others' feedback to tweak things and to fine tune that and to continue working and strengthening that sense of self. Now, sometimes I say, and I might've said this on the podcast, I think I said this in our men's group a couple weeks ago, where I, I sometimes will say, look, I'm not saying that there aren't people who have secure enough upbringings and good enough parenting that they don't really struggle with some of the things that I struggle with, or they don't have the same challenges that many of us do, right? If I'm saying this, like in a men's group, I might say that. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying I don't know them and I probably wouldn't be comfortable hanging out with them because I don't know how that works. Like this is what I know. This is the story that I know. These are the people that I know and these are the people that I feel at home with. And lately, as I've been thinking about that, 
one of the things that I've added to that is that actually I think life has a way of putting challenge and suffering into everybody's life. And sure, maybe some people come from healthier family systems than others of us do. And that might help them. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that suffering or that challenge is still, it still brings them to their knees and stops them in their tracks. Maybe. But what I've started to add to my thinking around that lately is that I think the truth is we aren't drawn to the perfection in others. What we're drawn to is a shared story, shared interests, common struggles, vulnerability. We want human connection. And in order to have human connection, we need one human connecting with another human. That means we're going to connect with common struggles, lessons learned, challenges faced, moments of suffering. Humans are complex and they're messy at times and they're learning and they're growing. And with human connection, what's needed is to be able to be in the mess and complexity with another person. And I think that is part of self-care. And I think for many people, that's what's missing in self-care is it's the connection with the complexity, with the messiness, with the parts of our story we don't like or we'd rather avoid and facing that and saying, I still matter. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.